All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We're going to be jumping back in at chapter 19. And the section we're in and will be in for a while has roughly been labeled a foolish son dealing with fools and foolishness. So, of course, as we know, other people are always the problem. (laughs) All right, good. Some of you are awake. Let's open with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we left off at, well, right around 25. We're going to just pick back up at chapter 19, verse 23, because it's worthwhile. Anytime the fear of the Lord is mentioned in Proverbs, it's worth paying attention to, because this is the thesis, and that language draws us back. Uh, to that thesis, like kind of exploring the different branches of the tree and then getting drawn back to the trunk itself every time you have the phrase, the fear of the Lord. It reminds us that Proverbs, while it might have all kinds of practical or earthly wisdom and application to it, chiefly the wisdom we're talking about is that wisdom that is Christ, wisdom enfleshed, the wisdom of God made manifest to us in Christ Jesus and then his teaching through the scriptures given to us. So it is a Christian wisdom. The fear of the Lord leads to life, verse 23, and whoever has it rests satisfied. So life is not something we have of ourselves. We have it only in him. And rest is not something we have in ourselves. Rest is is only to be found in him. That's true because after you get back from your vacation, you need a what? Rest. rest. Yeah, you need a rest from your supposed rest. And then it's just never-ending quest for rest, which sounds rather restless, doesn't it? I think so. And then, of course, rest satisfied. So to be satisfied um, is really... We're striking at the heart of idolatry because to be satisfied, one can only find ultimate, absolute satisfaction, the summum bonum, the greatest good or ultimate good within the Lord. That's the one we've been made for. And so apart from him, we cannot be satisfied. I mean, you can, you can eat enough to get where you say, okay, I don't want to eat anymore, or that was a satisfying meal, or that was a satisfying drink or cigar or whatever the case might be, But that satisfaction is temporary at best and quite rather superficial, uh, no matter what it is. So that ultimate satisfaction to be found in the Lord. And it begins with fear of the Lord. We should fear, love, and trust him, as the catechism says. Okay, 24. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. I think that's where we left off last week. He buries his hand in the dish of Reese's Pieces and is so lazy he can't even bring it back to his mouth. So commenting on uh, 
sluggardliness. Now, I suppose if you meditate, I don't know how deep this proverb is relative to the other ones. Maybe not all that deep. But just to take a quick stab at it, there is an aspect of uh, sluggardliness trying to find rest that ends up where um, one can't even take care of himself. One can't even do the basic things to make himself comfortable. And so, in a sense, sluggardliness ultimately leads to uh, its opposite. It uh, leads not to some sort of good status, but rather a bad one. Okay, and then on to the new, 25. Strike a scoffer, and the simple will learn prudence. Uh, Maybe a little bit more literalistic translation, will become wary. So the simple who are not minding their P's and Q's will see a scoffer reap what he sows, and they will start minding their P's and Q's. So set forward here, if nothing else, is deterrence. And that part of the reason for justice and for a kind of strictness or severity of justice and why these things are good, why God is strict, why God is severe, because these things are good and because the nature of punishment, even just purely punitive, is deterrent. It is to deter others from this course of action. It is sobriety. It is to sober up others. That Look, if you're not paying attention, this thing can happen to you. Where society, we see this of course today, becomes lax and is not strict, is not severe, except maybe against certain political adversaries. But barring that, what do you have? You have crime begin to uptick and you have lawlessness begin to be rampant because there's no deterrent. So I know that this sounds like shocking and untenable to American minds, but if they drew and quartered the next rapist publicly on, on uh, TV and internet, sorry, if you're going to be online, you're going to be watching this. What do you think would happen to the number of rapes? Yeah, my guess would be that they'd go down. Anyway, even if uh, you think that might be a worthwhile experiment, or should we just keep on allowing our women to be raped? I, our, country is, our country is choosing to not do anything strict, severe, just, and we're reaping the whirlwind. So it is, I mean, of course, it is, it is in fact the case that examples need to be made and that an example made, parents even know this, that if you make a big deal from time to time about something that isn't, then you don't have to make the big deal when there's something that is. So this is something I frequently tell my kids if they disobey me in something small, I say, look, if you disobey me in something small, how can I ever trust you with something great? How can I ever take you to do the really cool and dangerous things if you won't even listen to me with the simple and safe things. So that's, that's part of the paternal, um, and, and sometimes there needs to be a heavy punishment, a just punishment, but a heavy punishment for something light because it's a deterrent keeping and protecting them from something greater. So these, these principles of parenting are the same principles that play in government and frankly also in church government uh, because it's a paternal headship. 
it's a patriarchy through the three estates. That's what we see biblically. Remember the estate of the family, heart and center of it all, and the authority of the two other estates flow from this estate of family. This is all, if you're uh, foggy on this or think that uh, I've been reading things I shouldn't or something like that, then please, by all means, uh, go to the large catechism and look at the fourth commandment and then look at the eighth commandment for good measure. So then the paternal authority of the state and the paternal authority of the church um, function similarly. And part of, part of justice is deterrent. So, again, back to strike a scoffer. Um, a scoffer, one who's mocking. Uh, it, it's usually in the case of like mocking at God's word, but it could be mocking at the truth. It could be mocking at goodness in general. It could be mocking at the laws. I mean, there's broad application here. But strike a scoffer. And the simple will learn prudence or will become wary. Either way, he'll start paying attention, lest that come upon him. Now, contrast this with the second part of the proverb. Instead of a scoffer, you have a man of understanding. Reprove a man of understanding. So this might at least superficially indicate a difference in treatment that a striker deserve, or excuse me, a scoffer deserve deserves to be struck, a man of understanding needs only to be reproved. And I think that's worth considering, that not all people are the same and understand who you're dealing with. And if you're dealing with someone who is otherwise a man of understanding, you can go much more gentle, can't you, than, a man who's, than with a man who's not of any understanding at all. So reprove, rather than strike, a man of understanding, and he will gain knowledge. So that's a good thing when you identify those of understanding to, to reprove in a spirit of gentleness, of course, and watching and guarding oneself lest we also stumble. But to reprove a man of understanding, knowing that he will gain knowledge. And then I think all the more also this proverb encourages us because I mean, would you rather be the scoffer or the man of understanding? We'd all rather be the man of understanding. So if you'd rather be the man of understanding, when you receive reproof, don't get offended but rather gain knowledge. Now, it's always a good thing to do, especially if something stings your ego, which happens more often than we'd all like to admit. Something stings your, your ego. You might even filter it out and say 95% of it's nonsense uh, or 95% of it's wrong-headed headed or mean-spirited. But whatever that granule of truth is and however small it is, it's worth taking to heart. It's worth gaining understanding. And if something's striking at your ego, there's chances that you actually might not be as right as you think you are. <laughs> That's why it hurts. <laughs> so kind of, a, kind of an adage they... Um, well, I think it's just a broad expression, isn't it? Like, how does it go? I'm going to butcher it. But it's something like if you throw a stick, the dog that yelps is the one that got hit. So the idea being... If you, you know, if somebody, if somebody says something, so this was used in seminary, if you're preaching and someone's like, hey, that's really offensive, you know that that's, that's the dog that got hit by the stick, right, so to speak. So uh, another way we would put it would be like, well, if the shoe fits. Right? So you're, preach, you know, you're preaching against some sin or something, and then someone goes, I'm really offended that you were preaching against that sin. It's like, all right. So, um, what then? 
we ought to pay attention to that as we hear things, as we receive things. If it strikes us to the heart, we ought to pay attention. That's whether you want to say the testimony of the Holy Spirit or whether you want to say the witness of your conscience makes little difference. It's opportunity to gain knowledge. Knowledge about yourself, knowledge about your dealings, knowledge and perspective. Maybe you have gone astray from the straight line of God's word in one way, shape, or form. So these things that hurt are good. And that's um, it's a principle that's widely applicable. We just don't apply it to spiritual things because we're all, by nature, spiritual experts. But if you want to go and get your body in shape, is it going to feel good? Definitely not at first. Maybe down the road it starts feeling good. But why don't you exercise? Because it sounds terrible. The older I get, the more terrible it sounds. And indeed, the more terrible it is. Uh, you're, you're not sore for like 24 hours like in the good old days. Sometimes you just wake up the next day and be ready to go. You men remember those days? It's wild. My son has those. And like now it's like, okay, I tried to lift weights and I need to be in the hospital for have more lactic acid than muscle. Yeah, it's just... So anyway, but it hurts to improve. And of course, students know this, because when you go to school, do you really want to study? I mean, maybe if it's something you're interested in, then great. That's why graduate school is fun. But undergraduate, especially the first two years, are hard. Usually the first two years anywhere you go are hard, because it's not really the stuff that you are fascinated with and interested. It's the difficult stuff you don't really want to learn but you have to learn to broaden and that is painful difficult but that's how you grow why would we assume then if it's physical if it's mental that it's any different spiritually it's not it's not and i think um maybe maybe wherever triumphal triumphalism exists in the in the christian soul or in the denomination hey this is who we are we've got it all figured out we're the guys who have it right you most certainly don't. And you also ha- indicate that you individually or corporately have a spirit that doesn't want to grow. Um, I, I count it like an essential mark of a theologian that you be set free from various heresies along your journey. If you're not, what are you even doing? <laughs> like, were you born from the womb knowing all of this? Were you, uh, when you graduated seminary, did you grow no further? So there's this ongoing process where we're learning and being conformed into the image of Christ like father, like son. We become more and more like our heavenly father. We should full on expect to be set free from various serious errors in our spirituality along the way. And then we come to recognize that those are always at first painful. But that pain then, once you're used to it, it's like lifting weights or it's like studying or anything else. You go, I know that this is worth it because I know the fruit that comes. Okay, so probably did more there than I need to, but I do like this proverb, and I think it has very deep wisdom for us to consider here. Let me pause and see if anyone wants to get in a word edgewise. I'm, I'm struck by uh, uh, one thing that isn't parallel in this proverb. Uh, you have strike a scoffer and the naive may become shrewd. So you strike a scoffer and some other person will become shrewd. Yeah. 
but reprove one who has understanding and he will gain knowledge, the same person you reproved. Is there something that we... Should we... As far as I can tell, every translation translates it along those lines that I, that I have any respect for. So apparently there's this, this lack of parallel between the two cases. Well, it there- de- yeah, I don't know. And, and I might be missing the mark here, so let me know if I am. But where the simple will learn prudence... Um, a more uh, just literalistic would be the simple will become wary. It's not necessarily a positive thing. It's not, not, not necessarily that he goes from being simple to being prudent. He goes from being simple to, oh, my gosh, I don't want that to happen to me, which isn't exactly wisdom. Though that isn't necessarily bad. Either. No, it's not, it's not bad. So the simple is deterred from scoffing. Yeah, I mean, to so put it. The scoffer is already kind of a fool. Yeah. And it's so simple. But it is. It struck me as odd that in the one case you're right. You're reproving one person, and some other person is learning from it. But in the other case, the person being corrected, yeah, it's he goes the attitude adjustment. Yeah, yeah, and I agree. I agree that there's that asymmetry there. Sure. Yeah. I the the question that you know you wrestle with in this text is, um, does the simple one? Well, this is like. So the, the way I would tend to read this, and I don't really care, you can read it some other way and not do violence to the scriptures, but the way I think that this, um, or what this is getting at, is what we would call like the first use of the law. Remember the curb? So, like, why don't I speed? Now, as a Christian, it might be a, a different equation going on in my mind, okay? But if I were an unbeliever, let's say, why don't I speed? I just don't want to get caught. I don't want to get pulled over. I don't want to get the ticket. I don't want my insurance to go up, which is usually even more than the ticket. And then, is there any sense in me that's like, oh, I don't want to speak because that's the right thing. Because I love God and my neighbor so much. You know, in fact, I'm going to just take it like four or five miles under the speed limit just to be sure that everyone's safe. No. No. There's no love for God or neighbor there. There's just simply straight up, I don't want to do the time, right? I want to do the crime, but I'm not going to because I don't want to do the time. So that's, that's the kind of civil righteousness that the world has. Now, would you rather have somebody who's civilly righteous, who contrary to the desires of their heart, out of just pure self-preservation, drives the speed limit, or someone who doesn't? And drinks and drives and is wild and crazy. Obviously, one is more civilly righteous than the other. But does either have any righteousness of the heart? No. And so I think, too, that's probably the sense here of the simple, which is very often the unbeliever, very often the one who despises God's word. That the simple sees the scoffer getting struck, and all he says is, I don't want to get struck. I'm going to start minding my P's and Q's, which is very different than a Christian saying, I love the Lord and his word. I love my neighbor and want to serve and love my neighbor. Very, you know, two different equations there. So if that clarifies any my position, great. Um, otherwise, yeah, I do see this uh, asymmetry. Okay, what else? Nothing else? We're okay? 26. He who does violence to his father... Ooh, I'm going to have to read this to my son. He's got those bony elbows. And, you know, I'm just like, I'll, I'll be laying there trying to watch the Colorado Buffaloes lose. This is, you know, this is how you become a good theologian. It's suffering. 
and I'll be laying on the couch and then, you know, out of nowhere over the back of the couch will just become like a bony elbow with like 85 pounds of mass behind it. Okay, you young men in, the, in here, he who does violence to his father, listen carefully, and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. Okay, well, all joking aside, because the content here is very serious. Uh, children, um, of course, of course, you know, we can comment just very briefly on the fourth commandment here. Do you remember the tables of the, of the law? Do you remember the two tables of the law? What commandments go on the first table of the law? Do you recall? The first three are typically on the first table of the law. And this, this comes, of course, where Jesus is asked what the greatest commandments are. And he says, love the Lord your God, etc., etc., and your neighbor as yourself. Okay? So the first table of the law, the first three commandments, no other gods before me, not misuse the name of the Lord your God, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Those all three pertain to God. So that's the vertical dimension, that's the first table of the law. And the second table, commandments 4 through 10, have to do with neighbor. And the chief of those, we would think, if we were doing it, that the fifth commandment would be the fourth, that we'd actually say, you shall not murder. That's the most important. Life is the most important. God disagrees. Parents are even more important than life. From whence does life come? (laughs) That's why. This is so uh, important because when you're born into this world, you aren't self-sufficient. You can't care for yourself. You are completely and entirely dependent. We've got a little baby back there to demonstrate. If you all want to turn around. But baby has to be fed, clothed, sheltered, I mean, washed, everything. Everything. Babies can do nothing. That's why they're such a great analogy for how God cares for us and why God takes, or why Christ takes up a little child and sees the little children bringing, being brought in, in their, their parents' arms. And he says, to his disciples, of such is the kingdom of God, and unless you turn and become like one of these, you can't enter. That's the point. Children are in the office to just simply receive, and so are we as Christians in the office to simply receive. Okay, if not for parents, children would, as Luther puts it, die in their own filth within a half hour. So, Parents are the emissaries of God. They are in the office of God unto children. As God provides for all of us, he gives parents to provide directly for children. They're his emissaries, his officers, and for that reason, they are to be uh, honored. Honor your father and mother um, as if honoring God. Sometimes, why I brought up the two tables of the law is sometimes you will find the fourth commandment for these reasons put under the first table of the law. Because there is no more direct way for us as children to honor God than to honor our parents. As you honor your parents, you are immediately honoring God. In the same way that if you honor a police officer, you're honoring the government, the people that stand behind him. Make sense? Okay, so then you can see in biblical context how egregious this is. He who does violence to his father and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. Obviously then, we want to strive to uh, honor 
uh, love, obey, serve, cherish our parents. And the, catech- the large catechism is great. I don't know what the exact German is or whatever, but in English, a fair translation or fair way of reading it would be um, no matter how strange they are. So no matter how peculiar they are, no matter what faults and weaknesses they have, to whatever extent you can honor them, honor them. Um, obviously, very challenging if your parents are unbelievers or if your parents are like really strong heretics or something, okay? Even so, you love and cherish them insofar as you can, insofar as they will receive it. And that is going to be great for you. The opposite is um, to bear shame and reproach. Straightforward, but nice meditation there on the fourth commandment, I think. All right, anything you want to add? No, that's a, that could be a challenging one. I know that. 27 then. Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. So we think that, uh, well, every once in a while I run into people. Maybe you've run into them too. They read the catechism once a couple decades ago and they know it. And, and that's it. No one can tell them nothing. They're done. They graduated from confirmation. What more could anyone ask? They pretty much have a doctorate in theology. So there is this idea in fallen human nature, and I've pressed it to an extreme, but if I know it, I know it, and that's all there is to it. Here is a statement right from the Holy Spirit that if you stop hearing instruction, you're going to stray from the words of knowledge. So we sometimes we'll talk about a perishable skill. What's an example of a perishable skill? Language. Language is a perishable skill, definitely. Definitely. Musical instruments are often perishable skills. Even riding a bike, you never forget how to, but you might forget how to do so well. To jump on, if I were to jump on a bike right now with the same confidence I did when I was eight, ooh, wouldn't go, well, <laughs> wouldn't go well at all. All right, so skill, we do know that there's skills and knowledge that's perishable, and theology is that same way. The knowledge you have will atrophy over time, and the person who says, "I read the catechism two decades ago, I know it all," probably doesn't remember what the six chief parts of the catechism are. Do you? Got to get out your catechism. So it's kind of like if you, um, like if I were to say how many testaments are in the Bible and you didn't know there were two, then would you really think that you knew anything about the Bible? Kind of the same way with the small catechism. It has six chief parts, and if you don't know what those six chief parts are, you can't really say you know the catechism. So this knowledge is constantly atrophying. And if we cease to hear instruction, if we cut ourselves off, the atrophy begins. And we're going to end up straying. So this idea of, like, I'm a Christian, I don't need the church, is an absolutely foolish idea. On the idea of, I can just just go off and be my own, and listen to my own, and do my own, um, is, is disastrous to one's soul. Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Theology is a perishable skill. 
okay, 28. Uh, the ESV has a worthless witness, but I think it's I think a better would be malicious. This isn't like a clueless witness. This is a malicious or evil or intentionally bad witness. A malicious witness mocks at justice. And the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. All right, well, you can see the mouth in play both with the mockery and with the devouring of iniquity. So some nice poetry there. But you can see how a malicious witness mocking at justice subverts the system. And the mouth of the wicked not only mocks and not only speaks evil, but then devours. Kind of this reap what you sow. We've seen this kind of thing before. So what would that, what would that be in terms of, you know, if you contrast this with what came before? If you cease to hear instruction, you're going to stray from the words of knowledge. Pretty soon your mouth is going to be malicious. You're going to be testifying to things that aren't true. You're going to be mocking at what is right, justice. And then as it goes from the mouth, so it comes back into the mouth. You reap what you sow. You devour iniquity. Anyway, that's like a proverb of, of disgust. You read that and you want to go, that's not how I want to be, right? Kind of like the guy in Jesus' parable today in the gospel. I'm not preaching on it. I think I have like the last 12 times or whatever it's come into the lectionary. But the guy who has no wedding garment at the end, if you're tempted to feel bad for that guy, don't. He stubbornly refused the wedding garment. He's thumbing his nose. And when the master comes, the king comes, I mean, and and says to him, hey, where's your wedding garment? He's not silent out of like, oh, no, I'm caught. He's silent out of insolence. It's a parable of disgust. And Jesus tells these parables where uh, sometimes because we, you know, we just like everything to be nice. We actually see the bad guy in a sympathetic light, and we see the good guy in a negative light. Really, the king here who binds him hand and foot, has his servants bind him hand and foot, and casts him out into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, the king's the good guy. The king's the guy we should feel sorry for, that he was so insulted and spat upon by this uh, man not, who refused to wear the wedding garment and decided to sit there in his own duds. And when he gets cast out, instead of feeling like, oh, I'm sympathetic to him, it should be like, darn straight. And the last thing I want to be is that gross. So Christ, where's that wedding garment you have for me? <laughs> Christ, where's that robe that covers all my sins? I don't want to be found in your wedding feast wearing my own dirty garments. Let me get changed right away into what you give. Make sense? Okay, so here too then I think would be a proverb of disgust, just like there are parables of disgust, where the whole point is, don't be like that. 29, condemnation is ready for scoffers and beating for the backs of fools. Yeah, I mean, what are you going to say here? It's just a pretty, pretty much a straight up warning, isn't it? That scoffers and fools, um, and this is the Lord speaking, so like you don't get away from the Lord. That's the thing. And in, in final sum and total, you'd really get away with nothing. Um, 
there's, you're going to answer for it in some way, shape, or form. So maybe that would be the sense is that God is keeping track of everything. And a positive spin on this or application of this would be don't look at the world and see the scoffers and the fools getting away with it and think that means they're going to continue getting away with it. Because they won't. In this life or in the next, accounts will be settled. Or if it's not too, if the word of God isn't too offensive, condemnations are already prepared and beatings are already waiting. Which kind of sounds horrifying to me. So I think I'm going to try not to be a scoffer or a fool. All right, before we get to every teetotaler's favorite verse in all the Bible, are there any questions or comments? <laughs> all right. So wine is a mocker. Strong drink, a brawler. And probably the strong drink that, to which this is referring, like in context, a thousand years or so before Christ, uh, probably is a lot less strong than the strong drink we have today. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So does it say don't drink wine? No, that's not what it says. Does it say don't drink strong drink? No, that's not what it says. Sorry, teetotalers. But it does give the warning that um, wine, and we know this, that alcohol lowers inhibitions. And the tongue starts flapping. And um, I think the mockery here is, you know, it's not saying there can't be fun. There can't be lighthearted stuff, um, jesting and teasing. It's not what's precluded here. It's the kind of mockery of the things of God and the things that are righteous and holy. That's what's in view. And so you want to be careful. That's the warning of this proverb. Don't be led astray. Realize that the character of wine is that it will bring out mockery. You want to make sure you're not led astray. And then same with strong drink, only strong drink is brawling. And so that's like aggression. And maybe, maybe, that's, not, uh, maybe that's not relatable to you, but then what you should do is just go out on a Friday or Saturday night to a bar and sit in a corner and observe and watch all the men trotting around with their puffed out chests and all the quote unquote drama that ensues uh, from men and women who are imbibing strong drink and becoming brawlers, combatants, aggressors. Okay, don't be led astray. So again, strong drink isn't even forbidden here. Just understand its nature. Understand that it can lower inhibitions in a way that causes one to become violent or aggressive. What's that saying in Vino Veritas, in wine there is truth? And that's true and helpful to a degree. I mean, even Jesus, I frankly think, leverages wine. A lot of his teaching is there's drinking going on. Um, and I think that that's, that's fine and can be leveraged fruitfully. But when that truth gets a little too sharp and a little too unproductive and a little too, um, what was the point of me saying this angry thing again? Was it really for the correction of my brother or was it just to say something nasty? When that line gets faded, uh, then even verbally we've become brawlers or aggressors. So don't be led astray by these things if you do partake. 
I mean, I guess I should add this too. It doesn't say you have to drink wine. And it doesn't say you have to drink strong drink just as it doesn't forbid these things. Okay, any, any thoughts on that? Any thoughts on booze? This is the proverb about booze. <laughs> I'm just thinking, isn't there some uh, writings by Paul about not drinking in front of others to, in, to influence them? Or how does that fit into this proverb? Well, you've got the weaker brother thing going on right, in Paul. Right. Is that what it is? Yeah. 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 Um, honestly, I think that would take us too far afield. I, I would just, I would say this, that the weaker brother argument in Paul has its kind of abuse in, um, in this. Like, well, so-and-so is an alcoholic, so uh, what we need to do is get rid of all of the wine in communion and just offer grape juice for everyone because we don't want to give any occasion for our... Is that right? Well, why not? He's the weaker brother. Make you do the heavy lifting here. <laughs> what, what that kind of exaggeratory perspective shows is that it's not a sound... It's not a sound argument what is going on there with the weaker brother is something which I, I think is generally personal and private and it has to do with whether someone thinks it's a sin or not and if you think if someone thinks it's a sin like whatever it is okay, drinking is a sin you don't want to say, I'm sinning right in front of you, and then get him under the idea that it's still a sin to sin because you're doing violence to his conscience in that specific instance. The same would be true for, and I think Paul makes the case for uh, meat sacrificed to idols. Meat's meat, whether it's sacrificed to an idol or not, we all know this, who cares? Enjoy your hamburger. But if somebody goes, if you find yourself in this specific situation where somebody thinks it's a sin to eat a hamburger, and you go, look how juicy it is. Oh, oh. The lettuce is perfect. The tomatoes, wonderful. The secret sauce, absolutely worthy of being kept a secret. And then they eat it. They eat it thinking that they're sinning. And what that does is it does violence to their conscience. A conscience is a conscience whether it's rightly formed or wrongly informed. Um, it's an instrument. It's like your, it's like your lungs. Okay. Um, if you, uh, your lungs function and if you run, your lungs function even better. But if you smoke, your lungs will function even worse. Right? So your conscience works the same way that if you go with your conscience your conscience will continue to function and be like, hey, don't do that. You know the old Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder thing? Hey, don't do that. Warning, warning, something's up. Don't do that. But if you just trample your conscience, even if your conscience is wrongly formed and thinks that something's a sin that isn't a sin, and you still trample it and go against your conscience, what you're doing is silencing, it's, it's, you're silencing it, you're um, 
diminishing its function. So the next time when something really is a sin, the conscience voice will be muffled. And if you abuse the conscience long enough, the conscience just stops accusing altogether. So that's what you see where God, you know, in the language of Romans, gives people over to their sins. Their conscience stops functioning. And they stop going, oh, this is, uh, this is evil. They go, this is good. So I have yet to meet a little kid that if you say, I think we're okay. If you say, um, boys kissing boys, they don't immediately go, you know, that's disgusting. They've got this visceral reaction to it, okay? Uh, reaction of disgust. Even different than, oh, what about, what about mommies and daddies kissing? Or what about boys and girls kissing? There's this kind of embarrassed, you know, yuck, but usually with a smile on the face and this sense of, like, you know, interest. Very different reaction when it comes to, okay, so where does that go? That's inborn, that's innate, it's unnatural, we know it's unnatural, we know it's gross. It's just superficially gross. The best argument about homosexuality is, like, not that the Bible says, it's just that it's gross. That's it. It's fully asserted. It is. Um, and our conscience have been diminished to the point that we don't see it as gross. Now, extend that beyond all sins are, in fact, gross or disgusting in one way, shape, or form. And the fact that we don't see it is because our consciences, to whatever degree they have been, have been diminished. Okay. But the idea is you don't want to damage this instrument. That's the idea. See how I said it was going to take us too long, and here I am all the way down in the rabbit hole anyway. So when you, when you start to understand those principles... That this is what Paul's talking about, and this is why he's saying it, and this is what's going on, and it makes perfect sense. It's very different than when somebody goes, you know, my great-grandfather was an alcoholic, so we're not going to allow any wine on the church campus for anyone ever. You have to listen to me because I'm the weaker brother. Like, we don't need to make a real long argument to see that there's two different things going on here, Right? See that there's a kind of abuse of a principle, abuse of a principle, and a principle that's given in service to the church. So um, the idea of like, well, it's kind of like the same thing. Like, let me speak as generally as I can. Imagine a congregation where there was a couple of obese people. Should we therefore forego all potlucks? No. We would ask those people to bear that burden. Okay. And we would do the same with alcohol. Just bear that burden. Know what you can tolerate or not. Um, you know, the same thing might be true if you've been in some of these collective prayer groups where everybody pools their prayer. If you have eyes to see immediately, what will be exposed is the people who have a problem with the Eighth Commandment. Because the prayer petitions are very often indistinguishable from gossip. <laughs> so then should we forego praying corporately? No. We should ask those people to watch it. 
be careful and bear with this. Okay, so the church is filled with these kinds of things. We're not going to give up everything just because somebody has a, an issue with it. We've all got issues. We've all got temptations. We've all got weaknesses. We bear each other's burdens in love, and we lift up and uphold each other. And Yeah, sure, if you know that somebody really wants to go to an event and there's going to be wine there, but they're thinking they're not going to go because they have a problem with wine, you say, how about if I go with you and I won't drink? And we'll just hang out together. Great. Wonderful. That's a fantastic Christian and loving thing to do for your brother. Does that kind of answer the question and kind of get us around that, that whole topic, hopefully, in a broad sense? All right. Very good. On to two. Yes. Oh, yes, sir. Please. I, I just wanted to note passage, and that is it doesn't mention beer. Uh, yeah, alas. So alas. I think we found a loophole. Or bourbon. Well, yeah. strong drink. I don't I think know. Bourbon is covered. Is it? Beer. Bourbon's like the princess of strong drinks. It kind of stands out on its own. No, it's teasing. Yeah, yeah, no beer. Wine, and who knows? The strong drink may well be some kind of uh, mead brewed from honey or um, like port, like uh, more condensed kind of wine. I'm not a. Obviously, I'm not very versed in all that stuff, but um, it's probably not vodka. Yeah, please. I just wanted to add that in this, whether it's food addiction or chemical addiction, or I, I'm so glad that you're being gentle in treating this with us because you pointed us at one point in the direction of that Gottensdienst, you know, the gods of our age. Mm-hmm. And for anybody that's really interested in exploring this kind of thing, that was so helpful to start looking at how the world portrays alcohol as it's a comfort it's an escape if you worked hard all day have a glass of wine so i think it's real important for us to start going a little deeper into these things like what does the world tell us that food is you know have a bag of chips and have a party and eat more and drink more and so in addition to what you're saying yes there are true addictions and those need to be dealt with in a different way than what the world is telling us how we should release stress or I mean, maybe we should pray instead or read our Bibles or go for a walk or something else rather than run to drink or whatever. Not that we shouldn't do it at all, but start paying attention to how we're using these things and what the world is telling us they represent. Yeah, got a lot a, of mileage out of that. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, you bring up several great points, uh, not, not least of which in, in our own individual struggles with things, we don't put that on the entire church or the entire community. Like that, there's that statement, there's that phrase, do you remember the dry drunk? The dry drunk is the one who's now alcoholic about not drinking alcoholic. And so they're still every bit as addicted. It's just addicted to not drinking. And then what almost inevitably happens is that gets enforced upon everybody else around. So, yeah, I think, I think to keep our battles our own battles, to receive the things that we can receive from the hand of God as good gifts, to realize those things that other people can handle that maybe we can't and draw lines. Um, these are all good and great things. We should support each other and encourage each other in that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you. So let's just jump into, you can see how artificial the chapter break there is at 20. It just doesn't matter. Remember, 
verses and uh, chapters seem to have been put into the Bible by someone riding a horse. Oh, there it goes. Okay, there's 20. Verse 2, the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. More than a few meditations you could have on that. So in one sense, you could see a tyrannical king. And you could see the sad reality that um, going up against a tyrant may well cost you your life. So you want to be confident and steadfast that your true king is Christ, and then you won't be afraid of the tyrant, and then you won't mind calling a tyrant a tyrant. And if you end up in prison or exile or uh, dead, ah, big deal. Christ is still my king, and he's going to bring me through death and all the rest just fine, as he has his people of old. And ultimately in the resurrection, guess who will be uh, in trouble? It's not going to be me, it's going to be the tyrant. All right, we could also meditate upon this in an uh, altogether different light, and that is to say that Christ is the king. Whether he's recognized or not, Christ is absolutely enthroned in heaven, absolutely king, and rules over all the nations. And if you want a refresher on that, Psalm 2 is the quickest way I know how to get there. So then Christ has his own terror. The terror of the king is like the growling of a lion. In this case, the lion of the tribe of Judah... Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life, indeed, and his eternal life. Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry. Recognize that there's an authority and a person who holds that authority, and uh, it doesn't matter whether we think it's fair or not. It doesn't matter whether we think it's right or not. It doesn't, none of our feelings matter. He rules, and how he rules is what's right. So we have that uh, We have that reflection also then in terms of Christ. And in terms of a good king, or by extension, good government, Romans 13 spells out what that is for us. That is, um, when the ministers of God in their left-hand kingdom rule, in the estate of the state, among other things described in Romans 13, but chiefly and centrally, when they reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. When they bear the sword, which, by the way, is capital punishment in the New Testament, so it's right there, they bear the sword, they don't do so in vain, and we should give thanks to God for godly rulers when they rule that way, when they punish the wicked, and when they reward the good. And we should, rightfully then, um, fear a good ruler being provoked to anger and thus having a a capital sentence put upon ourselves. Now, what happens when you've got um, earthly rulers who are rewarding the evil and punishing those who do good? Well, by one degree or another, you have leaders who are not ruling in accord with the commandment of Christ, who are not ruling in accord with Romans 13. And the rubber really hits the road where they would command something that God forbids or forbid something that God commands. Then we must obey God and not men, obviously. All right, one more then. Three, it is an honor for a man 
to keep aloof from strife. But every fool, or yeah, but every fool will be quarreling, which is uh, which is fine. So I think this is maybe gets at the sense a little better. Let me see if I can do this. It is an honor for a man to keep from striving. Um, it is an honor for a man to keep free from drama. Since any fool can start a fight, since any fool can start drama. There's the uh, 2023 Rhodey Standard Version. <laughs> it's easy to start a fight. It's a piece of cake. Start a quarrel, start a fight, start drama. Absolutely simple. But it is rather than an honor for a man to keep himself from doing these things. To keep aloof from strife is fine there. To keep from striving. Don't get drug into the drama. That's an honorable thing for uh, any person. That's the sense there of that rather straightforward proverb, I think. So we've got drunkenness. We've got drama. Next week we'll be back on the sluggard. (laughs) The Lord be... Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Real quick. I've got a couple minutes here. Yeah. Dr. Laura's messenger used to say, decide what hill to die on. The woman who was drummed out of broadcasting by the homosexual Mm. lobby. Yeah. Back when homosexuality was considered a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, decide what hill to to die on is is good because you want to, I mean, anybody can martyr themselves instantly, right? That's that's obvious. But I think think the, the danger is do in fact, though, choose a hill to die on. Because <laughs> the proverb very often gets read as, never choose a hill to die on. Which is, of course, counter the proverb. The proverb, or that statement, means to go right down the, the center of the two. All right, that's it. The Lord be with you.